Three Films on a Podcast has no claim of ownership on any film footage used in this episode. All film footage is owned in its entirety by the copyright holders and is used solely with the intent of film criticism, commentary, and education under fair use law. And just like every car in Too Fast, Too Furious, this podcast contains spoilers. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to Three Films in a Little Podcast. On these episodes, we're going to be recapping some of the old films that we've gone over in the past year. You guys started out with us in what ended up being round nine, which was Spike Lee joints, where we talked about Do the Right Thing, 25th Hour, and Malcolm X. But we've been doing this all year long, so we thought it'd be nice to go back and let you guys know about some of the other films we watched and what our thoughts are on it. The idea behind Three Films and a Little Podcast was just to be a little bit more loose and have kind of a, a fun structure with this and just give you the overall feelings on these movies. Yeah, I figured, you know, if we could... Uh, we could have some seasonality to it, right? We could, um, you know, Halloween's coming up. So maybe we watch some Halloween movies and they're not necessarily uh, baked into the structure of our, our round system and our nominations, but just some kind of stuff to, to uh, you know, have some fun and be in the moment and, and hopefully get some uh, interaction from our listening community. Our goal here isn't to record a podcast and listen to ourselves talk about movies. Uh, the whole purpose of doing this podcast was to get uh, as many people involved in it as possible. And so we've got our selection um, system that we have to choose movies, but we really want to involve as many people as possible. Um, as Tyler mentioned, like we've got Halloween and, and Christmas, these different like off, I guess, subgenres of movies that uh, we'd love to watch and we'd love to discuss that may not make it into our regular round structure. But we'd, we want to hear... Um, from you guys, we want to hear what people have to recommend um, for those types of rounds. For sure. And I, like, I'm almost like kind of scared for people to nominate movies around Halloween because I am not a horror fan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, such, I'm such a wimp when it comes to horror stuff. Um, you know, stuff like uh, Parasite I loved and, you know, anything Jordan Peele does I'm in for. But like, I'm afraid of what some of our listeners might put me through during the Halloween season, but I'm also excited about it. I think it'd be super cool. I mean, I feel the same way as someone who's never seen Poltergeist or Rosemary's <laughs> baby or some of, of these, you know, classic horror movies. I'm kind of curious what we're going to end up watching, but that's, that's the purpose behind the podcast is we want to get a community involvement and we want to have like create a discussion around film. That's something that we are all very passionate about and we hope you guys are too. So to start out with this first round, at the beginning of the year, I thought it'd be a great idea if we just kind of picked some films that had been on our radar for a while, but we hadn't gotten around to yet. So our first round consists of Dunkirk, which was chosen by Tyler, The Farewell, which I chose, and Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was chosen by Matt. And I've just got to say, as an overall like consensus for me on this round is... I believe year to date, this is still the most beautiful round of movies that we've watched. They are like very highly regarded. You know, going back on our letterbox scores, I don't think we dropped below three on any of these films. And they're just some, some of the most cinematic and beautiful things that we've watched all year long. For sure. And they're also different, right? Like, I mean, you have the internal struggle of uh, a young woman battling against her heritage and who she thinks she is and what her family wants her to be. You have uh, a World War II movie with is it World War II? I believe so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Soon, right when I said it, I was like, what if it's World War One? and I look like <laughs> such an asshole? And then I just made myself look like an asshole. But yeah, you know, you've got 
uh, the horrors of war, and then you have um, the the struggles of a young man and 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 you know feeling like an outsider in his own community and feeling like he doesn't belong somewhere where uh, he desperately wants to belong. And yeah, I think one of the the basic tenets of a, a good film is when our protagonist comes up against some conflict, and these are three great examples of the different kind of conflict that people come up against. So the first film that I watched for the year was actually The Farewell. And I went back and I looked at my letterbox score and I said that although this is literally the first day of the year, this will probably be the most beautiful film I've watched all year long. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. When that is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying. When people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Don't you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go online, we'll find out right away. Really? And I I still pretty much hold true to that. I think it'll definitely end up in the top three. But The Farewell was a film by Lulu Wong, and it was based off of her appearance on This American Life, where she actually told the story of this movie. It was released by A24. I think those guys always put out wonderful films. And this was just a, a really fun dive into a different culture and to understand why we do the things we do, both like within our family and within our community. It stars Aquafina in what I believe is her like feature film debut. And I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought she was absolutely wonderful in this movie. I I thought she handled herself, like carried herself really well throughout the film. Oh yeah, absolutely. In regards to Aquafina, like I I worked in West Valley, Utah for five years, all the way through college as, as a bank teller. And West Valley in Utah is probably the most diverse city in the state. In regards to the market that we, we serve was like Vietnamese, Chinese, um, all, all kinds of people from the Middle East, from India, from Latin American countries. And it was interesting to see the behind the scenes in China, what they thought of the West and sort of the, the things that the West likes to cling to and what the East clings to and how both sort of feel like their, their thing is better. And also to see Aquafina, who's like seemingly in the, in the movie, she's grown up in the United States. And so she's got sort of that, like, I communicate better in English, but here I am in China, like mm-hmm. immersed with, with my family and like, even, even she has to sort of like brace herself for the dynamic there um, and the language barrier there, like just, just things that you don't even think about that these ethnic minorities in the United States have to deal with uh, when they go home to their countries. How bad is she? You can tell me the truth. The cancer is quite advanced. Shouldn't we tell her? In her situation, most families in China would choose not to tell her. When my grandmother had cancer, my family didn't tell her. Isn't it wrong to lie? I mean, if it's for good, it's not really a lie. I mean, it's still a lie. It's a good lie. For sure. And you know, it's like, it, 
it's hard enough to go to a new place, right? Like, so I've, I've moved twice in the last five years, once to Texas and once here to Oregon. And one of the most difficult things to do is to find a new community. And so I, I can't even imagine that struggle with dealing with a language barrier, a culture barrier, all that sort of thing. I mean, there was a sort of culture barrier in Texas, but not to the degree that Aquafina goes through here. Um, but, and, and, and with all that said, it's, it's funny to hear you guys talk about this movie. Maybe not funny. It's interesting to me because I didn't like it as much as you guys did, or it didn't stick with me as much as you guys did. I certainly liked it and mm-hmm. thought it was well made. I'm actually looking at my letterbox review, uh, for the first time in a while. And I, I literally said, I was like, I feel like I should have loved this film. And it, it literally checks on my boxes. Um, but I just, I just, I don't know. I just, I liked it, but I, I'm surprised I didn't love it. Um, maybe it's because I watched it on a double feature and the first film was Joker, which put Ooh. me in a weird mood. <laughs> I think anything you um, watch after Joker is going to have like, a skewed Maybe it just hit too home, hit too close to home, or maybe I'm dead inside. That's like literally what I wrote. And I, I've, it's just, you guys have always mentioned how much you love this movie. And I just liked it. I thought Aquafina was great. And I definitely related to a lot of the themes, but I just, for me, it was just like, okay, great. Like, I just, I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. And mm-hmm. I think the, it's probably one of my favorite things about uh, art and filmmaking and uh, what we're doing in general is just seeing, I like when, I like when we don't agree, we, uh, that we often agree on stuff. And so this yeah. one was a, a rare opportunity to not agree, even though, I mean, I didn't hate the movie. I just, to me, it was just kind of eh, like, it was fine, you know? But, yeah, I, I think it's one of the greatest things that film does is just opens up discussion and, you know, hopefully with respect and things like that between everyone, you're able to kind of see what the other person's viewpoint is and why they saw that that way. And, and hopefully, you know, they can do the same for you. I think I loved this film so much because I really enjoy um you know, my, my favorite kind of a book is just a biography. So I love any sort of biography, especially if it's like semi autobiographical. That's not right. If it's biographical, I'll run with autobiographical. It. Yeah. There we go. Uh, especially if it's semi-autobiographical, like this one was. This was based on Lulu Wong's real life, where her grandmother was sick. And um, to read the tagline from the film, it says, "A Chinese family discovers their grandmother has only a short while left to live, and decide to keep her in the dark, scheduling a wedding together before she dies." So in the movie, uh, Billy, who's played by Aquafina, finds out that her family's going over for you know, this, this pseudo fake wedding, um, just so everyone can go see their grandmother. And they talk about in the Chinese culture that they don't let people necessarily know when they have a terminal illness because they feel like it's not the sickness that kills them. It's the fear. And just jumping off from that and understanding how different cultures treat these kind of situations. We see, you know, Billy has, has been raised in America and just doesn't understand why they would still do that. Like let the person know they deserve the right to know. Um, and we find out, you know, later in the film that the grandmother did it to her grandmother as well. Like, this is just how the culture behaves. And it's just, it's such a wonderful story. I think a lot in the sense of learning about where you come from and who you are and what the impact is of, of your, your heritage, you know, of your culture on life and, and where it carries over, um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is her doing what I believe is Tai Chi with her grandmother. Mm. 
气，哈，哈，哈，哈，好多了，好多了，好多了，再来点气儿，再来点气儿。<笑> Just as a way to to connect with her, you know, and then it it, it carries over prominently when she comes back to America, and it's that kind of stuff that like that lets these traditions carry on. Yeah, and I think one thing that I gravitated to.、Um, In the movie is so, it was Ben's first choice. It was my first foray into this movie club, and I think it、um, it kind of really embodied what I really wanted out of this movie club experience. Just like right out the gate,、uh, a movie that I wasn't even on my radar.、Um, I had no thought about it, but really like it takes you to China. It puts you in the shoes of someone who is Chinese but has been completely detached from. The the culture that she comes from,、um, to the point where she can't even empathize with why you would ever not tell the person who's dying that they're dying,、mm-hmm. and then you kind of go along that journey with her, and by the end of the movie, like I find myself asking even now, like having family members who have been diagnosed with cancer, it's like is it is it better for them to know and to like live their life knowing and Have that burden, or is it better to them just to live like normally?、Mm-hmm. Like that, that is a question that, like, by the end of the movie, I feel like you've kind of crossed that bridge. You're like, like, yeah, we we embrace like Western ideologies、um, and what we're what we've been given, but is it better? Maybe it maybe it's not, but there is that conversation there, and it really it, like it just put me in China. It put me in those shoes, and like it was that experience for me,、mm-hmm. and I just enjoyed every second of it. For sure, I think one thing I'm actually kind of sort of thinking about the more that we talk about it、um, doesn't really change the way I felt about the film as a whole.、Um, but basically, at a certain point, you have to get rid of who you are in order to fully immerse yourself into a new situation, right? Like,、yeah. just from my own personal experience,、uh, having moved to a new place and. You know, don't really know anybody. Don't really. I didn't even come here with a job. I found a job when I got here, and you. I sort of forget that like the people I'm meeting don't have、uh, a previous relationship with me. My whole life, I've been around people that either knew me or knew of me because I've met them through friends or whatever. But she really had to sort of let go of who she was and and fully、um, and fully try to understand. The world that she was in now, and I, the, when I thought of that, was when you're talking about the Tai Chi scene,、uh, where she, yeah, it's not something she does, but that's probably something that was outside of her comfort zone, and she put herself in that situation and, and really immersed herself. And it's, it's probably a lesson I could, I could do with,、uh, with learning myself. So I, the more, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we talked about it. Yeah, agreed, a hundred percent. I think my favorite line from the movie, I believe, comes from Nai Nai, who is her grandmother, and. Ends a quote or ends a discussion with Billy by saying, "It's not what you do; it's how you do it."、And、I think that's a great message to take away overall from this film.、Um, I think on our end,、uh, let me know what you guys think, but I, I feel like it's a, a recommend from all three of us. Yeah, I'm not sad I watched it. Oh yeah, yeah. Our letterbox scores:、uh, Tyler with three and a half, Matt and I with four and a half. So strong start for the film、um, for the <laughs> film club. Let's see. So let's let's move on to this this next one that we watched was Matt's pick and was actually a movie that I had not 
heard much about before Matt picked it, and that is Last Black Man in San Francisco. We built these ships, dredged these canals. In the San Francisco they never knew existed. This is our home. You two stick together. Yeah, so Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, towards the end of 2019, I started noticing um, a common movie on several people's watch or most watch lists or mo- favorite lists. Yeah, it was on Obama's. It's on, it on Barack Obama's. <laughs> you know that guy. Yeah, you may have heard of him. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and then I, so I looked, I looked up a few of those movies just to see like... Um, what looked interesting and Ben had showed me letterbox before. And so before we had even gotten in the movie club, I had it on my watch list and, uh, nice. I did not know that I wanted to see it. Um, I thought that a movie club scenario was a good opportunity to, to watch something like that. Um, just to give a little background on it, it's, um, directed, I think it's the director, the directorial de- debut of, um, from Joe Talbot. Um, and then he co-wrote it with Jimmy fails who stars in the movie um, alongside uh, Jonathan Majors, who's been popping up in several things since, uh, which has been awesome to see. Mm-hmm. And I think it's his. I think it's his uh, feature debut too. So um, it's cool to see him at the beginning there. And then it's got a, a small role for um, Danny Glover um, there as as Jonathan Majors' father. Anyways, Who's follows- not getting too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Never. Um, this follows uh, sort of the story of uh, a young black man who finds himself really attached to his childhood home, which has since been um, gentrified. Um, it, it kind of tackles that issue, which I hadn't really seen tackled before. Mm-hmm. And and since I've watched the movie, I've seen it. I've seen it kind of as a theme in other movies, but. Um, this really, really puts it on display. Uh, basically the San Francisco has been completely gentrified, uh, black neighborhoods, Japanese neighborhoods, uh, have been, uh, put in a scenario where the prices have been raised. Um, the, the appeal has been targeted more towards, uh, the white people who can afford them. And it's turned these neighborhoods into totally different than what made San Francisco, San Francisco, um, and totally changed the identity of San Francisco. And so that's that's an interesting uh, thing to take on. And so we see Jimmy Fails um, really take us through San Francisco, really show us the, the charm and the soul that a lot of these houses and these neighborhoods have um, and the impact that they've had on them. And the, the biggest thing for me on this movie was just the cinematography, the yeah. shots, the shots that it showed at San Francisco. Um, and then just the, the narrative that it told about 
the stories we tell in our heads that are very possessive about what we've experienced in our lives mm -hmm. and what that means in the context of a black man in San Francisco. When we built these ships, trans these canals, in the San Francisco, they never knew existed. For sure. And, you know, watching some of the behind the scenes um, and just some separate interviews with both Jimmy and Joe uh, Talbot, I, I guess this is loosely based off Jimmy's life growing up, which I think just, again, makes it so much more interesting to me, just like the farewell and we'll get to Dunkirk, which is also, you know, based on a true story. I think that's kind of the running theme that we had going on this round. But I, yeah, as someone who spent every other weekend in San Francisco with my dad, I feel like I've never seen a movie portray like the beauty that I associate with San Francisco, um, like Last Black Man in San Francisco did. It was just one of the one of my favorite parts of the whole film. You know, there, there's the the account of every every frame of a portrait. Is that what it is? Every frame of photo, something like that. Um, and I, I feel that way about this movie. I feel like you could just take any shot in this film and the, what it's capturing. Um, it's just amazing. Uh, speaking of, you know, the starring roles in it, uh, Danny Glover has a little role, but one of my favorite cameos, I don't know if you, either of you caught this, but, um, the boyfriend who can't skate very well is a uh, day one song, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> I'm proud of you, J Bo. I really am. Thank you. I miss that city. Oh, Ooh, you still look good though, baby. Still look good. Mm. Mm. Oh my goodness. To have him in there as <laughs> someone who does not know how to skate. I thought that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it's a, it, it was a beautiful movie and the story that we, that we see, you know, with Jimmy going to the house and, and painting it for the upkeep when there's, there's other people that live there and they try to get him out of there, but he has such a love and care for the house that he grew up in. And, you know, as someone who goes back to where I grew up in California and sees the home and what they've done to it, it's like, Oh yeah. I mean, that's not what I would have done. You just have these, all these associations with this place, even though it's, it's no longer yours. Um, Fuzz, what did you take away from the movie? Uh, a lot of what you guys are talking about, I thought it was beautiful. Um, it 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 definitely to me it was like a it's like a dream sequence, right? It was almost like we're almost seeing someone's daydream of how they think about San Francisco, or maybe someone reminiscing on their time back. It was almost like we were looking, you know, someone on their deathbed thinking about this time in San Francisco, um, and you know, all three of us have some connection to the city. So we, you know, we have an idea of um, the uh, magic or the whimsy or whatever you want to say of San Francisco. And I felt like the movie captured it really well. Yeah. Uh, you definitely get a sense of, it definitely feels like San Francisco. Like having spent a decent amount of time there, that movie feels very true to uh, the actual vibe mm -hmm. of the city. Um, and one thing that's interesting and you guys kind of touched on it a little bit and, uh, I think we've all sort of experienced it in our own way is I think Matt, you said it, the demographics of a city change, uh, because they want to come and be a part of this, 
amazing place and they want to live in a place that has all this uh, culture and charm and character. And then uh, by proxy of all these transplants, then the, the dynamic of the city changes. And it's something that like I'm seeing here in Portland, you know, you hear about it all the time. Mm -hmm. People, you know, there's so many people moving here every day. It was the same thing in Austin. And now Salt Lake is going through a boom. And it's just, um, it's just something I've noticed a lot where can a city maintain its character and can it, or, or, or should it, you know, like, cause I still think Portland's great. I think Salt Lake's great. I think Austin's fine. I but some people love it. Um, and I don't know, it's just been something that I've always thought about because I've I've been the transplant now twice and I've gotten that look from people or maybe they didn't know I had moved here and they're mm-hmm. complaining about how, oh, the way things used to be. And I'm like, I still think it's pretty great here. American cities are changing. We all have our own complicated relationships to it, whether you're a newly arrived person who feels some guilt or complicated feelings about moving to a new place. Everyone is a participant in this. I I can't decide where I land on it. I think any city that's worth living in is just by nature, it's going to end up changing because people want to live there and they bring their own ideas to it. And so I I thought it was really cool to see it uh, from the perspective of someone who doesn't want that change and sort of uh, is fighting it to some degree because I'm the guy that's, I mean, I'm the, I'm the guy gentrifying, right? Yeah. Like what, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, it, we kind of discussed a little bit with the uh, do the right thing of like, what role do you have to assimilate in whatever neighborhood or wherever it is that you're going? And I think Jimmy kind of like really um, summarizes the feelings well with this of how much he loves the place that he grew up, but not necessarily what it's become when in the movie he says, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. Yeah. And I think that's true. Unless you understand and have the true passion and love for something, it, it, I don't know that it allows you to, you know, be able to criticize necessarily what it's become, you know, unless you kind of live through that whole thing. That's how I feel about Salt Lake. When people, when I tell them where I'm from and yeah. they'll say, you know, they start to whatever. I like the hair stands up in my back, you know, I get like fight. <laughs> I was actually on a, I was on a photo shoot. Um, it's probably it was a few years ago and uh, it was a big, nice house. And, uh, you know, I was talking to this woman who herself was a transplant to Portland going back to LA, but she had spent some time in Salt Lake and she was just shitting all over it. Huh. And like, I was new here. I was trying to like get clients. I was working for a realtor to photograph this home. And she and I were like going at it. I was defending Salt Lake with <laughs> all the fervor that I could muster. I like it. And, uh, like to the point where like the guy I was working with, his name's Andrew. We, we stepped aside. I was like, dude, I might, we might lose this client. Cause <laughs> I'm like, we're going at it. But I mean, it was a good, you know, it was ended up being a good conversation, but yeah. Um, I just, uh, I, I get that sentiment, you know, like I I'll always have a love for salt Lake and no one else gets to shit on it, but me. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally understand that as someone who, claimed for far too long that they were still from California, even though I've spent <laughs> over twice as long in Utah as I have in California. Like I, I definitely get that sentiment and Utah has definitely grown on me. I, I love it here. It's fantastic. And, um, I think, uh, kind of going back to the movie to, to go back to San Francisco, I'm curious what you guys think. And I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Um, but in one of our favorite recurring segments, Rushmore mountain, these are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? 
I feel like Last Black Man in San Francisco, for me personally, would fall in that Rushmore mountain of movies based in San Francisco. I mean, there, there's a lot to choose from. You know, the I mean, you have Bullet, which I think is one of the greatest, would probably be up there. All the Dirty Harry movies uh, get a little more lighthearted with Miss Doubtfire and some of those others. But I think just the way that it captures the city, again, just to reiterate, I, I haven't seen it done anywhere else that well. Um, I know it's kind of a, a broad. Yeah, gen- to me, it's. If, if I could live anywhere in the world, it would be San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie is in a weird way, despite uh, what we're talking about, how it's changing and it's not what it once was. It sort of it shows you why you would want to live there. You know, it's so beautiful. It has all this charm and character and interesting people and a, a great culture. Um, so, yeah, I mean, between this and so I married an axe murderer. It's probably- <laughs> yeah. We'll just do those movies twice on there. It'd be great. Um, Yeah. Overall though, I think another solid recommend from all three of us, Matt and I gave this four stars on Letterboxd. Tyler gave it four and a half stars. So yeah, I think a solid review from three films in a podcast. If you're going to watch it for, for no other reason, just watch it for the rendition. The the guy singing uh, the same. uh, It's beautiful. I don't even want to say too much more about it because it was, yeah, I, I listen to that song all the time. I, it's here. on my it's on my rotation, and it it takes me away every time. Oh yeah, <laughs> loved it. Yeah, so I didn't mean to move on too fast, Matt. If you have anything no, no. you want to add on, or Tyler, uh, I mean, just to just to briefly add on to to what you guys said, I feel like it romanticized San Francisco in a way where it showed the flaws. Because mm. um, like San Francisco is probably my favorite city in the United States. I mean, there's a couple cities that I love, but it's, it's, it's up there. It's in the conversation and I love it every time I go. And a lot of people that you'll talk to are like, Oh, well, there's a lot of homeless people or you have people who maybe know new San Francisco from back before it got like completely through gentrification changed. And they're like, Oh, it's just like completely different now. And now it's all just like tech bros and yeah, you know, all that. And it's like, it shows enough of the, of that. And it shows like, yeah, I mean, we get, we get that rendition of that song from a homeless person, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like it, it, it finds a way to romanticize even like the negative things about it, which kind of supports what Jimmy Fail says about like you can't hate something unless you love it because it's taking even like the things that are maybe the worst parts about the city and finding a way to like endear it um, yeah. towards the audience. Yeah, without a yeah. doubt. Well said. To wrap up this last round of movies, uh, Tyler chose Dunkirk from Christopher Nolan. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Where's the bloody air force? You know, I, that's probably the 
biggest movie in this round. So I don't know how much I need to go into it. Uh, but the reason I picked it was because of it was going to be on another movie podcast. Uh, Quentin Tarantino was going to be a guest and they were going to discuss it. Why Dunkirk for a rewatchables episode? This is a movie that only came out two years ago. Yeah, um, I guess it was because in the last month or so, I've been getting obsessive about making my top 10 list of the decade mm-hmm. of the of the 2010. And it was in watching Dunkirk a third time making my top 10 list that I think I had had it preliminary at seven and it jumped up to number two. Wow. <laughs> After I saw it the, the third time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to listen. So I'd always wanted to see it. Yeah, basically it was Nolan. I wanted to watch it. Um, I thought this movie was fantastic. I, I missed it in its initial run in the theaters um, and then they re-released it, I believe, before the Oscars. So I was able to watch this in the theaters. Oh, nice! And man, I think it's just kind of what Nolan does. You know, I mean, this isn't breaking news to anybody, but he makes things that you need to see on the big screen because you know, shooting this whole movie in IMAX, I believe all of it was either at seventy mil or sixty-five mil, something like that. Like it's all just it's it's huge. It's expansive and it's beautiful. The way, the way that this got captured. Um, it, it was definitely a, a great theater experience. Like you said, I think this is, you know, like probably the most recognizable movie out of this round. One thing I think this story tells so interesting, uh, tells so interestingly is we get three different timelines. One story is told over a week. One story is told over a day and one story is told over an hour and they're all intercut together. And I, I I remember hearing a lot of people complain about that when it first came out, but I just think it it worked so well. Did did that distract either of you? Did that take you out of it at all when you guys watched it the first time? No, it it took me a second to kind of understand, like just to follow it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, But I liked it. But my favorite thing about this movie was the way it was paced, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's your ear. It's like, it's nonstop. And I feel like it was a good way for it to, give you some moments to breathe by jumping into these other timelines yeah. and having a little bit, you know, maybe slower, maybe more quiet moments. Um, so to, it didn't distract. I, I liked it. I thought it was, a. am into it. I mean, people are hot and cold with Christopher Nolan and obviously not all of his movies are going to hit the same way um, for one person as they do another. And honestly, like the, what I go into expecting from a Christopher Nolan movie is to see things or experience things that I've never experienced before. I feel like he's that much of a film disciple that that he brings that to his films where he's going to put you through something, whatever it is that you haven't experienced before. And so like, I appreciate Dunkirk in that way. Um, I just, I like, I'm naturally just the kind of person where like, unless, unless there's some type of like reason or a huge payoff, like if there's a down ending, the movie obviously isn't going to rank very high for me. I'm I'm that I'm that type of movie viewer. Yeah. So like, um, I feel like that's where it falls off for me. Is like you see a World War II movie and you're expecting like some type of triumph, you know, some for sure, some big grand ending. And so for that not to happen, it's almost like I went through like maybe at first you get in all Chris Nolan movies, like you're a little confused, like some designed confusion of like what's going on just Mm -hmm. to get the hang of like what, how he's telling the story. And then you catch on and it's like, so awesome. It's like, wow, this is crazy. I've never 
experienced anything like this. And then it's just like, can it, can they finish it off? And a lot of people like who are familiar with like the Dunkirk story, like obviously know what was going to, what was going to happen. Um, but for me, it was like, there was like a triumph, a triumph in like those civilians helping out and, you know, bringing these soldiers home, yeah, these soldiers back, which was great. Um, but then it's just like the downer of like, you know, Tom Hardy's character, mm-hmm. the, the battle itself. It's like, Oh man. Yeah. yeah. But that was one of the best moments of the whole movie. The silent, just the glide over it was. The, the battle. And I think that's one of my favorite things. I don't know if it's necessarily something he always does. I can't think of too many other moments. I mean, there are some in other movies, but the quiet moments, you know, like this is a movie with, you know, bombs exploding and yeah. dog fights and whatever. But the moments that stuck out to me were the ones that were maybe not subdued, but they were just, they were quiet. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the Tom Hardy gliding over the battlefield. Um, and then uh, the soldiers hiding in the boat. I mean, yeah. that wasn't quiet. That was a very tense moment, but all we're seeing is the bullet holes opening up. There were not, you know, it's a pretty self-contained, simple scene, but yeah. it's very effective. And that's, those are probably my two favorite parts of the whole show. Yeah, and mine, just to piggyback onto that, is the opening shot as they're walking through the town with all the leaflets falling down. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's such a, a beautiful shot. And again, this is a World War II movie where you just expect action nonstop. And there's plenty of action in here. But like you mentioned, I think cutting between the storylines allows for some moments to breathe. You know, when you're telling one of these stories over a week, you can have some of these slower moments like... Um, you know, when our main character comes up on someone else who's, who's burying a soldier in the sand, you know, and, and we're able to spend time like, oh, this is the, this is the, the, the realistic, like thing that these guys went through. Like, this is how the things that they had to do. Yeah. I mean, this is Christopher Nolan, writer, director, uh, composed by Hans Zimmer, who I think we're all very familiar with. He's, you know, did the whole dark Knight trilogy. He has, the uh, composed Dune, which will be coming out soon, which we're excited about. Um, and this was shot by Hoyt Van Hoytma, who people may not be familiar with his name, but he has shot um, The Fighter. He did Her. He did Ad Astra. And he's done, uh, along with this, he's also done Interstellar and Tenet for Christopher Nolan. So, I mean, really just like a murderer's row here uh, of the behind the scenes. And I, I think that's why it is such a, a powerful and just really strong film. And yeah, to go along Matt with your point, I think that kind of carries over in the film that some of these soldiers are for lack of a better word, just bummed out that they have to evacuate. Like it, it's, it comes across as a loss, like they're running away. Um, but we see that at the end when, you know, someone congratulates all the boys for coming home and they respond by saying like, all we did was survive and he responds by saying, sometimes that's all you have to do. Hold on. Hold on, lads. Hold on. Hold on, lads. Well done. Well, we did it, survive. That's enough. And I just think it's so strong that they came back expecting ridicule and, and, and just to be mocked, but they... they got a hero's welcome because they were able to survive through what they did. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think this is a very strong film. Um, like every other movie, I wish I could see more of Tom Hardy's face, but you know, you'll take what you can get, I guess. 
Or um, hear his voice for crying out loud. <laughs> no. The guy refuses to speak in movies. Was this his back to back with Dark Knight Rises? Like, did we go from Bane to this? Uh, I think or so. Maybe he had Interstellar in between, but as far as Tom Hardy's concerned, yeah, that's what we got. But <laughs> don't hide that face, you know? I, I've got to say, this has to be, you know, if we're talking Rushmore Mountain, Harry Styles. Oh. This has got to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's this phase four times, I think, right now. I don't know what else he's done, but I, I did. I mean, it's funny you bring that up because I, I put in my letterbox that, you know, when Dark Knight was announced, I think like a lot of people, we just thought Heath Ledger, like the dude from Knight's Tale, is going to be the Joker. Like, this is Jack Nicholson's role. You can't do this. This is crazy. And not to sound too film bro but I think a lot of people just kind of accepted the fact that this is like the best version of the Joker we've ever seen now. And when we heard about Harry Styles, my initial instinct was the same thing. It's like, Oh, the one direction guy you're putting in a world war two movie. Like that's really where we're going with this. But you know, for whatever it's worth, I was like, well, I was wrong about Heath Ledger. Let's see what, Christopher Nolan knows that I don't, which is a lot of stuff. And <laughs> it turns say, out, at a certain point, we just got to trust the guy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah, I don't <laughs> care. Put whoever you want in the movie now. Like I'm, I'm sure it'll fit. And he, he was great in it. He, he surprisingly did not distract me from the movie. And I think that was my concern is that I was just going to see the pop yeah. star, but he, he went for it. Like the, the first thing that we see him in is he's almost drowning and he gets rescued, you know, like he, th- this kind of stuff that they put him through was, it was legit and I, I'm I look forward to seeing him in other things down the road, which I would not have expected to say before seeing Dunkirk. <laughs> though. I honestly didn't I don't know if I knew what he looked like going into it. Yeah. I'm not trying to be like the hipster like I don't know one direction. <laughs> I just genuinely didn't know. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't uh, bother me one bit. He did a great job. So it wasn't like it wasn't obvious which one was Harry Styles to me. <laughs> I didn't even know who he was really. And yeah, I think that's just a testament to his acting and to the movie. Um, so yeah, along with Tom Hardy, we get another, um, reunion with, uh, Cillian Murphy who plays Scarecrow. Um, he shows up in all three of the dark Knight movies, right? He's like the judge in the last one. And then the main villain in the first and beginning dark Knight. Yeah. So he's in there. We get Kenneth Branagh, um, who we see in tenant, which has just come out. We talk about that in a little bit, but, Christopher Nolan knows how to cast and knows how to direct. And I, I think this was a really good movie. Um, I don't, do you guys have anything else to add in regards to Dunkirk? Not really. Okay. We gave it, let's see, Tyler and I gave it four stars. Matt gave it three stars, but still, I think it's overall is a, a recommend from us. So check it out if you haven't already. At three films pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Gmail, internet some of you have our phone numbers give us a call <laughs> um the whole point of this is to get some interaction going so you know we're, we're welcome we're open to suggestions yeah and everywhere you can find us at uh www.3filmspod.com all of our links are on there if you want to watch the podcast listen to the podcast there's also an option for you to pick a movie just one specific movie for us to watch that we'll, we'll go over which i, I think opens up some great ideas and uh, would be a fun challenge for us to to look outside our, our box. So, um, yeah, I think that's it for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for watching, and we'll see you next week. Bye.
Gonna meet.